The Engineer by Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornbluth. It was very simple. Some combination of low temperature and high pressure had forced something from the seepage at the ocean bottom into combination with something in the water around them, and the impregnable armor around the subatlantic oil's drilling chamber had discovered a weakness. On the television screen, it looked more serious than it was. So Mollenhoff told himself, staring at it grimly. You get down more than a mile and you're bound to have a little technical problems. That's why deep sea oil wells are still there. Still, it did look kind of serious. The water driving in the pitted faults had the pressure of 1800 meters behind it. And where it struck, it did not splash. It battered and destroyed. As Mollenhoff watched, a bulkhead collapsed in an explosion of spray. The remote camera caught a tiny driblet of the scattering brine, and the picture in the screen fluttered and shrank, and came back with a wavering sidewise pulse. Mollenhoff flicked off the screen and marched into the room where the engineering board was waiting, in attitudes of flabby panic. As he swept his hand through his snow-white crew cut and called the board to order, a dispatch was handed to him. A preliminary report from a quickly dispatched company troubleshooter team. He read it to the board, stone-faced. A veteran heat transfer man, the first to recover, growled, Some vibration thing? Uh, and seepage from the oil pool. Sloppy drilling, he sneered. Big deal, so a couple hundred meters of shaft have to be plugged and plumbed. So six or eight compartments go pop. Since when did we start believing the CAC research and development hands out? Armor's armor. Sure, it pops when something makes it pop. If Atlantic oil was easy to get at, it wouldn't be here waiting for us now. Put a gang on the job, find out what happened, make sure it doesn't happen again. Big deal. Mollenhoff smiled his attractive smile. Brick, he said. Thank God you've got guts. Perhaps we were in a bit of a panic. Gentlemen, I hope we'll all take heart from Mr. Breck's level-headed, uh, what did you say, Breck? Breck didn't look up. He was pawing through the dispatch Mollenhoff had dropped on the table. Nine-inch plate, he read aloud, white-faced, and time of installation not quite seven weeks ago. If this goes on in a straight line, he grabbed for a pocket-side rule. We have a, uh, he swallowed. Less time than the probable error, he finished. Breck, Mollenhoff yelled. Where are you going? The veteran heat transfer man said grimly as he sped through the door, to find a submarine. The rest of the engineering board was suddenly pulling chairs towards the troubleshooting team's dispatch. Mollenhoff slammed a fist on the table. Stop it, he said evenly. The next man who leaves the meeting will have his contract canceled. Is that clear, gentlemen? Good. We will now proceed to get organized. He had them. They were listening. He said forcefully, I want a task force consisting of the petrochemist, a vibrations man, a hydrostatics man, and a structural engineer. Co-opt mathematicians and computer men as needed. I will have all machines capable of handling Fourier series and up, cleared for your use. The work of the task force will be divided into two phases. For phase one, members will keep their staffs as small as possible. The objective of phase one is to find the cause of the leaks and predict whether similar leaks are likely elsewhere in the project. On receiving a first approximation of the force, I will proceed to set up phase two to deal with countermeasures. He paused. Gentlemen, he said, we must not lose our nerves. We must not panic. Possibly the most serious technical crisis in Atlantic's history lies before us. Your most important job is to maintain, at all times, a cheerful and courageous attitude. 
We cannot repeat, cannot afford to have the sub-technical staff of the project panicked for lack of good example from us. He drilled each of them in turn with a large glare. And, he finished, if I hear anyone suddenly discovering emergency business ashore, the man who does it better get fitted for a sludge monkey's suit, because that's what he'll be tomorrow, clear? Each of the executives assumed some version of a cheerful, courageous attitude. They looked ghastly, even to themselves. Mollenhoff stalked into his private office, the nerve center of the whole bulkheaded works. In Mollenhoff's private office, you would never know you were 1,800 meters below the surface of the sea. It looked like any oil man's brass hat office anywhere, complete with a beautiful blonde outside the door, but white-faced and trembling. The potted palm, though the ends of the fronds, vibrated gently and the typical section chief bursting in the typical flap. Sir, he whined, frenzied. Section 6 is, is pinholed. The corrosion. Handle it, barked Mollenhoff and slammed the door. Section 6, be damned. What did it matter if a few of the old bulkheads pinholed and filled? The central chambers were safe, until they could lick whatever it was that was corroding. The point was, you had to stay with it and get out the oil, because if you didn't prove your lease, Petromax would. Mexican oil wanted those reserves mightily bad. Mollenhoff knew how to handle an emergency. Back away from it, get a fresh slant. Above all, don't panic. He slammed a button that guaranteed no interruptions, and, irritably seeking distraction, picked up his latest copy of the New New Review, for he was, among other things, an intellectual as time allowed. Under the magazine was the latest of several confidential communications from the home office. Mollenhoff growled and tossed the magazine aside. He reread what Priestley had had to say. I know you understand the importance of beating our spick friends to the Atlantic Deep Reserve, so I won't give you a hard time about it. I'll pass it on the way Lundstrom gave it to me. Tell Mollenhoff he'll come back on the board or on the board and no abyss or excuses. Get it? Well, hell. Mollenhoff threw the sheet down and tried to think about the damned corrosion leakage situation, but he didn't try for long. There was, he realized, no point at all in him thinking about the problem. For one thing, he no longer had the equipment. Mollenhoff realized wonderingly that he hadn't opened a table of integrals for 10 years. He doubted that he could find his way around the pages well enough to run down a tricky form. He had come up pretty fast through the huge technical staff of Atlantic. First, he had been a geologist in the procurement section, one of those boots and leather jacket guys who spent his days in rough, tough blasting and drilling and his nights in rarefied scientific air, correlating and integrating the findings of the day. Next, he'd been a chief geologist, chairborne director of youngsters. Now and then tackling a muddled report with theory of least squares and Gibbs phase rule that magically separated dross from limpid fact. Or, he admitted wryly, at least turning the muddled reports over to the mathematicians who specialized in those disciplines. Next, he had been a raw materials committee member who knew that drilling and figuring weren't the almighty things he had supposed them when he was a kid, who began to see the big picture of offshore leases and depreciation allowances, of power and fusible rock 
and steel and the machines, butane for the drills, plastics for the pipelines, metals for the circuits, the computers, the doors, windows, walls, tools, utilities. A committee man who began to see that a friendly beer poured for the right resource commission man was really more important than least squares or phase rule. Because a resources commissioner who didn't get along with you might get along, for instance, with somebody from Coastwide. And a lot to Coastwide, the next available block of leases, thus working grievous harm to Atlantic and the billions it served. A committeeman who began to see that the big picture meant government and science leaning communally against each other. Government getting science new and challenging tasks like the Billion Barrel Procurement Program science backing government with all its tremendous prestige. You consume my waste hydrocarbons, Mollenhoff thought comfortably, and I'll consume yours. Thus mined, smelted, and milled, Mollenhoff was tempered for higher things. For the first, the technical directorate of an entire Atlantic Subsea Petroleum Corporation district, and all wells, fields, pipelines, stills, storage fields, transport, fabrication, and maintenance appertaining thereto. Honors piled upon honors, and then... He glanced around him at the comfortable office, the top, nothing to be added but voting stock and board membership, and those within his grasp. If only he weathered this last crisis, and then the rarefied height he occupied alone. And by God, he thought, I'd do a damn good job of it. Pleasurably, he reviewed his conduct at the meeting. He had already forgotten his panic. Those shaking fools would have brought the roof down on us, he thought savagely. A few gallons of water in an unimportant shaft, and they're set to message the home office, run for surface, abandon the whole project. The big picture! They didn't see it, and they never would. He might, he admitted, not be able to chase an integral form through a table, but by God, he could give the orders to those who would. The thing was organized now. The project was rolling. The task force had its job mapped out, and somehow, although he would not do a jot of the brain-wearing, eye-straining, actual work, it would be his job because he had initiated it. He thought of the flat, dark, square miles of calcareous ooze outside under which lay the biggest proved untapped petroleum reserve in the world. Sector 41, it was called on the hydrographic charts. Perhaps someday the charts would say Mullenhoff Basin. Well, why not? The emergency intercom was flickering its red call light posillonymously. Mollenhoff calmly lifted the handset of his cradle and ignored the tiny bleat. When you gave an order, you had to leave the men alone to carry it out. He relaxed in his chair and picked up a book from the desk. He was, among other things, a student of old American history, as time permitted. Fifteen minutes now, he promised himself with the heroic past, and then back to work, refreshed. Mollenhoff plunged into the book. He had schooled himself in concentration. He hardly noticed when the pleading noise from the intercom finally gave up trying to attract his attention. The book was a study of the Mexican War, in which the United States had been so astonishingly deprived of Texas, Oklahoma, and points west under the infamous Peace of Galveston. The story was well told. Mollenhoff was lost in the story from the first page. Good thumbnail sketch of Presidente Lopez, artistically contrasted with the United States, Whitmore. More in sorrow than in anger, off-the-cuff psychoanalysis of the crackpot Texan, Beerley's raid at the head of the screwball Irredentist, their prompt annihilation by the Mexican 3rd Armored Regiment, Beerley's impeccably legal trial and execution at Tehuantepec. 
Stiff diplomatic note from the United States, bland answer, please mind your business scenarios and we will mind ours. Stiffer diplomatic note, we said please, senors, and we cannot let it go at that. Very stiff diplomatic note, the Latin temper flares at last. Mexico severs relations. Bad to worse, worse to worst. Massacre of Mexican nationalists at San Antonio. Bland refusal of the United States federal government to interfere in local police problem of punishing the guilty. Mexican third armored raids San Anton. Arrest the murderers. Fetid for weeks. Their faces in the papers. Their proud boasts of butchery retold everywhere. And hangs them before recrossing the border. United States declares war. United States loses war. Outmaneuvered, outgeneraled, outlogisticated, outgunned, outmanned and outfought, said the author. The colossal blow this cold military fact delivered to the United States collective ego is inconceivable to us today. Only a study of contemporary comments can make it real to the historian. The choked hysteria of the newspapers, the raging tides of suicides, White Moore's impeachment and trial, the forced resignation of the entire general staff, all these served only to sketch in the national mood. Clearly, something had happened to the military power which, within less than five decades previous, had annihilated the war machines of the Conformed and the Third Reich. We have the words of the contemporary military analysts, Osgood Ferguson, to explain it. The rise of the so-called political general means a decline in the efficacy of the army, other things being equal, an undistracted professional beast of an officer who is half-soldier and half-politician. A general who makes his sole job to win a war will infallibly defeat an opponent who, by choice or constraint, must offend no voters of enemy ancestry, destroy no cultural or religious shrines highly regarded by the press, show leniency when leniency is fashionable at home, display condign firmness when the voters demand it, though it causes his zone of communications to blaze up into a fury of guerrilla clashes, choose his invasion routes to please a State Department apprehensive of potential future future entities. It is unfortunate that most of Ferguson's documentation was lost when his home was burned during the unsettling years after the war, but we know that what Mexico's Presidente Lopez said of his staff was, my generals win me this war. And this entire volume does not have enough space to record what the United States generals were told by the White House, the Congress as a whole, the Committees of Military Affairs, the Special Committees on Conduct of the War, the State Department, the Commerce Department, the Interior Department, the Director of the Budget, the War Manpower Commission, the Republican National Committee, the Democratic National Committee, the Steel Lobby, the Oil Lobby, the Labor Lobby, the Political Journals, the Daily Newspapers, the Broadcasters, the Ministers, the Grangs, the Chamber of Commerce. However, we do know, unhappily, that the United States generals obeyed their orders. This sorry fact was inscribed indelibly on the record of the Peace of Galveston. Mollenhoff yawned and closed this book. An amusing theory, he thought, but thin political generals? Nonsense. He was glad to see that his subordinates had given up their attempts to pass responsibility from the immediate problem to his shoulders. The intercom had been silent for many minutes now. It only showed, he thought comfortably, that they had absorbed his leading better than they knew. He glanced regretfully at the door that had sheltered him. 
for the precious refreshing interlude from the shocks of the project outside. Well, the interlude was over. Now, to see about this leakage thing. Mollenhoff made a note in his tidy card catalog, mine, to have maintenance on the carpet. The door was bulging out of true, incredible sloppiness, and some damned fool had shut the locks in the ventilating system. The air was becoming stuffy. Aggressive and confident, the political engineer pressed the release that opened the door to the greatest shock of all. The engineer was found in the archives of Project Gutenberg. This ebook is for the use of anyone anywhere in the United States and most other parts of the world at no cost and with almost no restrictions whatsoever. You may copy it, give it away, or reuse it under the terms of the Project Gutenberg license included in this ebook or online at www.projectgutenberg.org. If you are not located in the United States, you will have to check the laws of your country where you are located before using this ebook. Sounds were sourced from zepsplat.com and audio. Now that we're done with the legal mumbo jumbo, I also have a YouTube channel, Red Door 44. It's the same audio with a little bit of visual razzle dazzle. If you have a short fictional piece you'd like me to read, let me know in the comments or shoot me a DM on Insta. Right now, my threshold is nothing more than 3,000 words, but if I like it, you never know. If you are in need of some voiceover work for a project or commercial, feel free to reach out through my website, joshuasandsvo.com. If I don't have the sound you're looking for, check out Bunny Studio. You can get there with my affiliate link in the description. I've been working with Bunny Studio on the pro side, and I can say for sure that every artist on that platform is top tier. Every project you make goes through rigorous quality control and comes with unlimited revisions. Try them out today. Thanks for listening.